within about four years of being a startup, it was around a 60, 70 million dollar business and super profitable and negative working capital. And, 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 it, and it went through a, a private equity buyout, you know, classic leverage buyout, taking advantage of the cash flow. And, and then it made its kind of, I suppose, first really big bet. And it was a big, I'd say, venture capital style bet, maybe rather than a leverage buyout, you know, kind of bet. And we, we went to the US. As you said at the start, uh, my God, you know, it, it, it looked like for a while we'd cracked the US. The, the revenue growth was absolutely phenomenal and we'd done it all while still servicing all that debt, you know, which, you know, felt, you know, very different to maybe some of our peers who are going to the US with war chests, you know, kind of stuffed with, stuffed with dollars. And so what happened next? Well, it all went wrong. Business was over uh, maybe a hundred million dollars now, and it was very profitable in the UK. And, it, you know, it was trending towards profitability in the US. In fact, we just made a dollar profit in the US and I'd framed it and given it to the guy running the US and congratulated him on, on you know, <laughs> being a proper business that could make money. <laughs> You know, it all being illusory. And, you know, a, a number of things happened in rapid succession. The first was the Royal Mail privatized in the UK. The prices went up, I could probably go, I don't know if I can even say, but triple digit, our largest cost. We spent more on posting the boxes to people than we did, you know, on the, uh, you know, some of the things we put, we put in the boxes. The, the impact on the margin, your future expectations on cash flows, the, what the EBITDA was going to look like in six months and how people would react to that. Was, was was pretty ferocious. So we were, we were working through this. And then the United States Postal Service came to us six months later and said they were doing exactly the same. So over the next three years, there were sort of super inflationary prices they had to put through. The combination of these two things meant that rather than having reinvented the world, you know, crazy revenue growth, profit, you were suddenly looking at going, well, kind of, this could quite easily disappear very quickly. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, I am delighted to welcome to the podcast celebrated healthy food entrepreneur and CEO, Anthony Fletcher. I can promise you that you will be hungry by the end of this episode, so grab a healthy snack and settle in. Anthony is the founder of Believe in Science, a scientific R&D business that has worked out how to make a donut which tastes like Krispy Kreme but has as many calories as a slice of buttered toast. It's called Urban Legend, and last year secured £3 million in funding. Anthony is most famous as the former CEO of Grey's, the UK's number one healthy snack brand that he joined from Innocent Drinks in 2009, soon after Grey's was founded. An innovative business model delivered personalised snack boxes by post 
to people's desks. I remember being a graze aficionado back in the day when it first started out and it was a way of getting healthy and sometimes decadent snacks on the go. The business was incredibly successful. In 2012, Anthony became CEO, launched the Graze product in the US with a $32 million sales run rate in its first year and took the product into mainstream retail with distribution in over 40,000 stores. The business featured on the Sunday Times Fast Track 100 for high growth businesses. Anthony led the sale of Gray's first to private equity group Carlyle in 2012, and then to leading global consumer group Unilever in 2019. I can't wait to hear more about Anthony's perspective on leadership in a high profile, high growth business, his unlock moment, and of course, the lessons he's learned along the way, and not to mention getting the inside track on the science of healthy donuts. Anthony, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thanks very much, Gary. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Were you always a foodie? How did you end up in these food businesses? So I had a really kind of traditional academic upbringing, um, you know, and went off to Oxford as a scientist and then went off to Princeton in the US and, and, and did research. But I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't have the faintest how to be an entrepreneur. And I always maintain I got really, really lucky as I just decided one day to go and knock on the door of Innocent Drinks in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> they seemed the sort of company you could approach. And um, they uh, ended up giving me a job. So I uh, had this wonderful apprenticeship at this wonderful business, you know, through all these different stages. When you say knock on the door, literally, what did, what did you do? I, I went to Shepherd's Bush and I rang on the door and I, I introduced myself and said, can I speak to someone about a job? And, and what was your background? What, what have you been doing bef before then? Well, I just finished, um, you know, this uh, the research. So I, I mm -hmm. suppose I was a new graduate on the market. And um, amazing. I was idly filling out all of those forms, you know, for all of those well-known brands, you know, which, uh, you know, recent graduates you know, go and join and asking myself, did I really want to be a scientist? Um, uh, and, and one day decided to do this. And, and what stage was the innocent business in at that time when you first joined? Yes, I think I was kind of a 20-something a, a employee. Um, so it, it was it was starting to rocket. Um, and I suppose it was in that sort of, it had cracked a formula and was starting to scale scale very quickly. And what kind of things were you doing when you, when you first joined? So my first job at Innocent was in manufacturing. And they admitted later they gave me this job purely on the basis that I must be good at maths with my background. <laughs> and my job was to work out how many smoothies needed to be made every day, and hence all of the ingredients and packaging, you know, strawberries and plastic bottles, which had to end up in our different factories um, at the time. Yeah, and I, and I think I was just so lucky um, to be in this wonderful business and to see the different stages, the kind of mucky, wild startup phases and these, you know, these, these crazy bursts of growth you get. But also the tough times where the growth, uh, you know, dies away or the world just changes, and how you how you deal with that, it was it, it really was tremendous. And so, how long were you at, at, at Innocent, and, and what was your transition to Grace? Yeah, so I, I was there through to kind of after the Coca Cola um, buyout, and and this time I was like, oh, I've learned something. I know how to be an entrepreneur, and I, I was driving my wife crazy, making products at home, some of whom I, I still maintain, you know, would have been successful. But I never did any of them. And that's because I came across the Grey's Box. And as you say, I, I just thought this was so radical because it was a different way of going to the consumers in an industry I loved, which was the food industry. And I got my job at Grey's in exactly the same way as Innocent. I found out where the office was and I went and knocked on the door. 
um, and said exactly the same thing. And what I find is most entrepreneurs do need somebody <laughs> to do something immediately. And um, they too gave me a job. Amazing. And 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 what was the Gray's business when you when you first joined? I mean, there was seven founders and. I turned up, sort of. Um, so I was, I was, <laughs> maybe I was the second. The guy who had a forklift license might have beaten me to kind of in, into the business. But yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was there after the founders. And did you have a sense of mission or purpose around these food businesses? I mean, Innocent was a business that was deeply dri- um, driven by its values. I'd say Gray's was deeply driven by how technology could be living. Live, um, relevant to the food industry and part of the fun or uncertainty was could it be at all no one really knew whether people wanted consumer goods posted to them and personalization and you know things which fitted through letterbox and you know all these things so to me it was wonderful because the business was full of all these people from technology a lot of them had been a lot of the founders had been at love film when it was dvds through the mail um I just thought it was fascinating, the, the data and the performance marketing and the relationship and the, the digital experiences you could um, uh, create. I genuinely thought they were onto something. That's interesting. So so the connection with the businesses that they'd run before was about fitting something through a post box, not developing a food product. Yeah, they were, they were very good at logistics because you had to be to do the DVDs. And also, oddly, they were very good at algorithms to decide what you should get. Because if you remember, Netflix was all about picking DVDs you wanted and then they'd decide what to send you based on all sorts of <laughs> factors. And um, this is what we were trying to figure out. Um, people just couldn't be bothered to spend lots of time telling us what they wanted. So we needed it needed to be a service which entertained them um, without putting them off. And what did you bring from Innocent, do you think, that you, you brought into Grey's? I mean... I thought the technology was mind-bending. I thought the product was dreadful. I thought um, the brand, you know, was you know very, very early stage. Um, uh, but but also, Innocent was a great company. So you know, had lots of thoughts on, you know, kind of what bits of Innocent I agreed and disagreed with, and had you know some some, some views on you know how they applied to Grays. And they ended up making me the CEO after a, uh, you know after uh, you know after a while. So. <laughs> I, I, I hopefully learned some good things from my time at Innocent. I'm always interested, you know, people thinking about the first time they became a CEO. What was that journey for you? And what did it feel like the first time you sat in that big chair? I don't know whether it was actually a big chair, but the, the imaginary big chair of, of CEO-ship first time. Yeah, I, I mean, the, you know, what happened was... You know, for a while, I was sort of this MD of the business or, you know, some people call it the COO in technology circles. And we had this visionary um, founder, you know, Graham Bosher, but he was quite happy to let me <laughs> get on with, you know, um, you know, you know, a lot of things, you know, to allow him to, you know, concentrate on, 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 on other things. But I, I think this is one of the key problems with my journey is it all went very well to start with. So maybe I was lulled into a full sense of security. And I certainly overestimated, I think, <laughs> in the initial years, um, my own abilities. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll come to some of those those stories. And I think that's that's a really fascinating part of your, your career where it became more challenging. In those early years where you've, you've got this kind of, you're on a bit of a rocket ship, you know, things are growing really fast. You know, how do you balance going fast with getting it right in that kind of business? 
and I remember wrestling with this and having a certain amount of anxiety. You know, why isn't this process in place? Or, you know, surely we, you know, we need the perfectly documented remuneration policy, which, and, you know, this is all wrapped up by a certain, you know, date each year and flows through into the budget, you know, et cetera, et cetera. A hundred things like um, that. I, I, I think my kind of reflection now is you've just got to be very mindful of what are the most important bits to get in at any stage. Um, and that's a question of judgment. And if you try and put too much in, you probably can't and probably cause more harm than good. And if you don't get some of the key processes in, things start unraveling um, pretty quickly. But I, I think it is one of the key jobs of the scale up versus the startup CEO is how to develop the organization. And what's the role of finding the right people? How important is that? I, I, I mean, it's the key. And again, timing is is so strange in these rapid rapid growth businesses the person who's the hero you know who's driving the business one year can suddenly find you know that they're not very comfortable with the next stage of the organization or uh, maybe is a good manager but not a great executive in that business or they go from being very popular to quite unpopular maybe because of their personal style just is less tolerated um so, so yeah, I, I, I think trying to bring in the right people and trying to bring along uh, the people already in the business, that's definitely a difficult area emotionally and from a judgment perspective. Did you feel any sense of imposter syndrome in that CEO role? Uh, no, I, I think I felt, as I said, sort of, you know, the, I mean, the business, yeah, was in the Sunday Times fast track three years and had 30% EBITDA margins and, you know, redefined a whole new channel to market, which I think was dimly understood at that time. Was it going to be enormous or not? But, you know, in wilder moments, you could definitely fantasize. <laughs> so, so, no, I, 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 I don't think I did, but I think I felt a lot of stress and it, you know, and it was very demanding. And did you feel that there was anything missing from your toolkit as the business started to scale as CEO? Or were you, you, did you feel as though you were sort of across all of the things that you needed to be able to be re, you know, competent at? I, I, I think I felt that it was a very emotionally draining and, you know, it was a little like a fire hose. And, you know, we touched on just developing the organisation when you're kind of growing at 100% a year. Um, but, you know, there's just 100 things kind of pressing in on you and the, you know, and the organization and um, working out how to manage that, you know, I, I, I think is, is, is part of it. And how did you handle that pressure in the early years of CEO ship? By working very hard and, and you know, getting stuck into too many things. And, mm. um, you know, as I said, not, not spending enough time, I think, confronting or even being aware of what a different approach to building that management team might be and whether that was that would even work in this in this sort of circumstance so talk me through the shape of the business and 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 how it started to shift as it as it scaled within about 4 years of being a startup it was around a 60 70 million dollar business and super profitable and negative working capital and and, and, it, and it went through a a private equity buyout, you know, classic leverage buyout, taking advantage of the of, of, of the cash flow, um, and then it made its kind of, I suppose, first really big bet, and and it, and it was a big, I'd say, venture capital style bet, maybe rather than a leverage buyout, you know, kind of bet. And we, we went to the US, and 
we went with this sort of MVP um, data-led approach where we fulfilled it all from the UK, launched the UK range, you know, super agile organization, iterating behind the data on, you know, a whole you know range of things um, to de-risk the launch, then following through with all the big CapEx and warehouses on the ground and, you know, you know, Manhattan office and, you know, all, all those things. And as you said at the start, uh, my God, you know, it, it, it looked like for a while we cracked the US and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the revenue growth was absolutely phenomenal and we'd done it all while still servicing all that debt, you know, which, you know, felt, um, you know, very different to maybe some of our peers who are going to the US with war chests, you know, kind of stuffed with, stuffed with dollars. And, and so what happened next? Well, it all went wrong. Um, so, you know, the business was over uh, maybe a hundred million dollars now, and it was very profitable in the UK. And, it, you know, it was trending towards profitability in the US. In fact, we just made a dollar profit in the US and I'd framed it and given it to the guy running the US and congratulated him on, on you know, being a proper business that could make money, rather than, you know, it all being illusory. And, you know, a, a number of things happened in rapid succession. The first was the Royal Mail privatized in the UK. Um, and um, the prices went up, I could probably go, I don't know if I can even say, but triple digit, you know, sort of in increase. Um, and our largest cost, we spent more on posting the boxes to people than we did you know, on the, uh, you know, some of the things we put, we put in the boxes, mm. the, the impact on the margin, your future expectations on cash flows, the what the EBITDA was going to look like in six months and how people would react to that um, was, was, was pretty ferocious. Um, so we were, we were working through this. And then the United States Postal Service came to us six months later and said they were doing exactly the same. So over the next three years, there was sort of super inflationary prices they had to put through. Um, and the combination of these two things meant that rather than having reinvented the world, you know, crazy revenue growth, profit, you were suddenly looking at going, well, kind of, this could quite easily disappear very quickly. So, so you're a CEO at that point, that up to there, you've, you've had this high growth, high profit, successful model, and, you, and you've very successfully, you know, built, scaled, grown it. And then you've got this fundamental challenge somewhat outside your control. How, how do you feel? Yeah, it, it, it all went, started to go sideways very quickly. You know, what did, you know, were we going to be able to pay back the debt? What did our current shareholders think of me, stroke, <laughs> you know, the future prospects, um, you know, of the business? What would other shareholders, you know, think if we tried to get them in and, you know, they, they peered at what was really going on below the budget. What did the employees think? Was the vision even relevant anymore? You know, uh, you know, how did the management team, you know, uh, you know, think this all started to spin out of control within, you know, a couple of months. And, and what did it do for the conversation around the table with the senior leaders? One of the problems was when you had the conversation you know, was it a high quality conversation? But also when you had the conversation, how did people react personally? You know, and um, could you have the tough conversation without people feeling crushed? Or had people around the table grasped the full context and hence the urgency or the drama with which we needed to change direction? You know, that kind of inertia which can creep in or 
uh, or disbelief or you know challenge of certain scenarios and require different things of you as the leader correct yeah hmm. and you know I, I didn't feel I had time to work through lots of these things I felt <laughs> you know we had to be presenting plans and reacting you know very quickly and at that stage you know you've got you know external you know significant external shareholders owners who who are themselves demanding that you've got to manage correct and they wanted yeah. to know the story and they wanted to know the way out of the story if that was the story and um you know they wanted to know whether uh they should be doing some pretty dramatic things with the business such as you know culling you know large numbers of heads or you know dramatically dialing back on certain investments yeah. so bring bring me into this time when when you're in the middle of this sort of crisis period and and this is when you really start to look at yourself as a leader in the role that you're playing with the team what does that look like yeah i mean i i had a strong hunch that i wasn't doing that you know the any any illusion that you know this uh i, I maybe i was a good scale-up ceo and i kind of understood the sort of the kind of how to run very fast and you know put it together as as, as i go and, and and the us but i i quickly realized that this was something completely different and um I was trying to find someone or something which you know would help me work through it. And what did you do? Well, that, I, I got lucky, uh, and I, I came across an organisation called Critical Eye. And when I told this you know, litany of you know issues to the people there, they kind of nodded and went, "Oh, yes, yeah, sounds about normal." <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, w welcome to you know not being the CEO of a you know the, the the tech business, which has just struck gold and is 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 is, is riding this. This all this all sounds pretty normal, and um, they talked a lot of sense what to do. But also, I think they asked the question. You know, the the question which occurred to them as you know, kind of people who work with a lot of senior leaders is, did I know what this was going to take, and how I might have to change, and maybe how naive I was on certain things as as well. Novity can be helpful sometimes, and also then sometimes a hindrance. Indeed, and um, you know the kind of what we agreed to do, which at the time I, I you know kind of sort of thing I hated was a two-day offsite with the team, and of, and of course I'm sure everyone anyone who's just you know kind of you know listening to this would have would ask the same question: Can we do it in one day? <laughs> of course, what I said, <laughs> to which they were very firm that no, they they couldn't. Um, so, so it did something which was really quite rare for, for that business and, you know, that it had been, and especially in this kind of urgent crisis, which was, you know, went off two days with the team to properly talk this through. They led that conversation? They, they, they led that conversation um, and, you know, brought in a number of CEOs who'd gone through the same thing, who in a very unvarnished and honest way talked about the reality of our situation and, you know, what it had looked like for them moving beyond that and do you think other people around the table in your team felt the same way you did i think by the end of two days one of the advantages is we all felt the same so rather than these discussions you were having where people were just in fundamentally different places by the end of it everyone was in exactly the same place on the nature of the challenge how the team had to evolve i put up my hands you know at the end of the meeting and said oh my god you know I'm going to have to evolve and it probably looks like this. Um, 
And also several of them came to me afterwards and said, I'm not up for this, which was helpful as well, because, um, you know, maybe, you know, part of the problem here was you needed a set of execs for the journey we'd been on, but maybe a slightly different set for the road ahead. There's a great book by a guy called Marshall Goldsmith, who's generally accepted as being the world's number one executive coach. And I say to people, even if you don't read the full book, read the title. And the title is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it, it is exactly this thing that you're describing, where you can have a team that's been incredibly successful growing to a certain point. And then there's a pivot point where for some people, it's not their bag or it's not their experience to be part of the next phase. And for other people, it can be, but they need to evolve their thinking. And for you as a leader, was this a moment of of, of thinking, this is my future, but I have to be different? Or were you thinking maybe this isn't my skill set? I, I definitely didn't think I was, I, I definitely felt I'd got it wrong, that this made a lot of sense. And I, you know, needed to give it a try. Um, and that would involve a lot of change. And and when you say you, you got it wrong, do you think you actually got it wrong? Or do you think that you just need to learn something new for the next phase? No, I, I, I definitely got it wrong. Because I'm, you know, I'm doing another startup now. And there's no way I'm trying to do it the same way as Gray's. I'm, I'm trying sure. to, to, do, to do it with what I've learned. And my big mistake was to have these very intense relationships with the different members of the management team. Some people I shielded from the reality and the truth or other people, you know, you, you tried to guide them more quickly towards what was going on. And, and what I'd missed was the benefit of educating the entire team on all the context in an unvarnished way. Mm-hmm. Uh, being aware that some people will not be able to take that and you know, being relaxed about then having that conversation with them, you know, um, and then having put that effort into the context and have um, being a team that wants to do it together and feels that they can they can go through it together, you start to sort it out. So what did your role feel like in the middle of all of those individual relationships? I mean, it was very intense. I think it was intense for me. and I think it was intense for them um and it also just isn't very effective because it means you have to have conversations multiple times and um while you know kind of all-day management team meetings or off-sites were once anathema to me what i did come to see pretty quickly was actually they're a very efficient way in lots of ways of for instance getting to alignment or giving people a context which means that they will react differently away from the management team um or understanding how to turn a challenge into a bit of an esprit de corps, you know, and can pull a team together, you know, when sometimes maybe they were pretty disconnected from each other or or worse. So it sounds like a bit of a shift from sort of Uber operator to leader. Correct. Yeah. And, and taking the time to build the team. I remember in, in, in a business that I was in the leadership team of, we actually looked at diaries and said, how much of our time should we think spend thinking big picture and how much should we spend running, operating the business? And, and we thought if you step back, it should be about 60 big picture because we were the only people that were really focused on that part and 40 operating the business. And then we looked at how we actually spend our time and it was about 95% operating and 5% thinking big picture. And that was a real wake up moment, actually, when when we thought, well, if we're spending 5% of our time thinking big picture, and it's nobody else's job to do that, 
you can have these real wake up moments when you when you think about the way you spend your time, the way you, you know the amount of time you spend holding the reins versus the amount of time you spend stepping back and letting go and allowing the team to 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 lead. Did it feel like letting go for you? Um, it did, and I think this, you know, this is one of the challenges with delegation. It isn't always the answer. <laughs> it's a judgment call. You know, what should you be involved in? What shouldn't you be involved in? Um, you know, so I, I maintain to the end of my times at Grays, where I, I certainly delegated, you know, a, a lot more and put a lot more effort into into the team. That you still need to jump into some fires. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the idea that you should delegate everything is is bonkers. And mm-hmm. there are meetings you should go to, and there are consumers you should do, and there are things um, which uh, you know I always felt required. Um, you know, you, you know, you to get involved in. I talk with a lot of leaders who recognise that they need to delegate more and let go more, and then when they reflect on doing it they realize that they you know they've intended very hard but nothing has actually changed very much so what practically did you do to shift yourself from so much operating to more delegating and leading yeah i, I think there's a whole host of things i mean i think one of the ones is when things aren't working how curious are you about solving the problem right in front of you versus solving the reason it's not working, which is often in an organization that size, something to do with the organizational design or talent or communication of objectives or, you know, uh, you know the, the, these other things, or even how clear you were in the first place. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a whole host of things like, you know, that, which you have to shift your personal behaviors. So... This idea of an unlocked moment, this idea of a remarkable moment of clarity. I mean, you've talked about a two-day offsite with the team and an external facilitator and so on. Do you remember a specific moment within that where that you you thought, this has got to change? Yeah, so I, I was sat by um, this very successful CEO at dinner. And he obviously had worked out I had a problem. You know, he was, he'd been around long enough to go, yeah, yeah, this is... <laughs> Another bright tech CEO who you know has, has his strong views that you know he's he's he's, he's you know all that, um, and he just told me a really basic story about spiders in the middle of the web, you know, and everyone coming to the spider to communicate, um, and you know why that works and why that that doesn't work, and yeah, it was he was he had diagnosed the situation correctly, and he, he told this you know almost nursery rhyme about spiders in webs, and uh, I was like, oh. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you know what's happening here. And what came to mind in your own experience when he when he said that? Yeah, he was, he was absolutely right. You know, he'd he'd uh, he'd been around enough, and he'd you know worked me out pretty quickly and worked out a way to you know uh, g- give me the feedback. And did you feel like you've missed something when somebody gives you that? Did did you feel like it was so obvious you should have thought about it for yourself or or not? No, I, I think it was a click. As in, I was like, "Oh, he's he's right." Yeah. But you know, you, you, then your mind immediately goes on to the "so what?" Well, how do I do this? You know, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got a problem. Um, you know, I need to evolve, and maybe like your earlier question, well, what does that look like? You know, and, and what changed for you after that moment? I, I mean, I, I think, for instance, we spent a meeting just writing down on a piece of paper, how we wanted to behave as a team. 
um and you know we all agreed on it and it was things such as you know the alignment in the room and you know some of them you know i i, I think many people would would recognize but we just spent the time to sit down and agree it and then in every meeting we'd pull out the piece of paper and just put it on the middle of the table as a, as a reminder I mean, I mean it's so simple but it was just the sort of thing you never felt there was the time or the importance to do it's interesting at the moment there are so many businesses so many people particularly coming out of the pandemic, who are so overwhelmed and also fatigued from the last two years. And there's a lot of things that will probably help around stepping back, seeing the big picture, making some big choices about how they focus their time. But everyone feels like they're just running so fast, they can't possibly kind of get off the, the hamster wheel. And so you had a moment there where you were still running really fast, the business was, was not slowing down, but you found ways to to change some behaviours. Correct. And, you know, what, what I then felt was over the years which followed, we did sort the business out and it was a fundamentally different team. Um, and you got to experiment with lots of ways of doing that in a very different way. And what feedback did you get back from the team in working in this new way? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the people who were there from the unlock moment onwards, there, there weren't a lot. So I think, you know, one of the things I've said is that quite a few people when confronted with the role or maybe as they were exposed to the nature of the challenge, just sort of freaked out and were like, well, kind of, you know, I'd rather go and, you know, work in something which, um, you know, is growing at a hundred percent a year than something which has stopped. And there's all these question marks. Um, I, I mean, they thought, it, you know, many of them, when I spoke to them years later, Similarly, it was a game-changing moment for them, and, and they thought we'd make great progress. I, I mean, the interesting thing is many, you know, I, I personally feel that that sort of sharing in an executive team, I always found incredibly useful. You know, what I found with many new executives, though, is that being confronted with the big choices or being confronted with the genuine jeopardy, even in a larger business, they found very hard to deal with. And how do they balance that, knowing that with how they then interact with their team, for instance. So you had to to bring, to pull together a new team, a lot of new faces around that table and create a, a new sense of alignment and, and camaraderie around that table, working together for the next phase of growth of the business. And what support did you have as a CEO to, to transition your leadership over that period of time? I mean, I, I had a coach who I found, um, you know, very useful this coach again had been a ceo of multiple businesses which i think is helpful um we had a chairman who again had been a ceo of multiple businesses and i didn't want to be the ceo but i i think again had seen a lot of analogous situations um and you know i, I felt i had a lot of empathy for the situation so these were the things i found very helpful so you had a close team of people around you that you could have open and honest conversations with about challenges and and it, did did they bring solutions or not necessarily solutions yeah, when it worked you know and you know i'm sure lots of people listening have seen it work and not work when it worked it was fantastic you know you know a diversity of people their different areas of expertise you know working things out and um you know kind of taking the business to the next level and we did have a lot to work out and you know yeah. you know a, a lot of wins from that point to where, where we ended up. 
um but also it doesn't always work and people disagree or people get emotional or the quality of strategic discussion isn't always sparkling and <laughs> was that hard for you when you'd been there almost from the beginning yes and you know i i, I you know one of the criticisms which was leveled at me certainly in later years was maybe because i'd been there so long you know i'd write off certain ideas you know maybe back in the midst of time they'd been tried or um you know had certain views which were still unhelpful um so you know i i I, I think despite trying very hard, I'd still hear that. So you took the business, you know, with the team through to the sale to Unilever, uh, and then you stayed on for, for, for a time after that. What was the point when, when you thought, this is time now for me to move on? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the Unilever transition. And, you know, we went from being a business that was managing its cash flow and <laughs> did not have a lot of money in the bank. An awful lot of people who always seem to want it to not even having to do a cash flow forecast was, uh, <laughs> you know, quite quite a highlight. Yeah, um, and you know, here, here was a business that, if you could find them, was full of experts who could answer your questions. Um, I, I think the problem was I just done it for eleven years, and I just couldn't get as enthused about some of the things which used to enthuse me. So it was time you moved, you moved on from Grey's at that time and you thought, you know, I'm, I'm done. I've spent all these years in, in innocent and then in Grey's, I'm going to, you know, retire to my, you know, comfortable home by the beach and, uh, and, and spend the rest of my days in, in, in peaceful harmony. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to obviously start up another high growth food startup. You've got to remember Gary that, you know, that, neither of these businesses i actually started so you know that, that was always hanging hanging over me um so actually you so you had a desire then to found your own yes and, and this is the advantage when you found a business is you can choose exactly what you want to do <laughs> so um i chose exactly what i want to do uh, you know of course i was aware of the market and you know trends and these sort of things but i picked something i was very interested in mm -hmm. um which was you know, I was originally a scientist and I genuinely believe science has most of the answers. And I wanted to see whether science could do something radical around sugar and fat reduction. Mm -hmm. And so, so where did it start? Where, where did Believe in Science and Urban Legends start? So it started with a meeting with the chief nutritionist of Public Health England. Mm -hmm. And she basically said, you know, the problem is all the junk food has too much sugar and fat in it. And it's great that Grey's has come along and become the market leading snack, but you know, with the healthy natural, you know, all the rest of it, but it isn't moving the needle at all. Everyone's just eating more and more sugar and fat every year. And I was like, yes, that's the problem. And you know, natural food is too expensive and natural food is only eaten by a certain proportion of the population and always will be. And um, you're never going to make the sort of margins which you can make on some of the more processed products. So that got me thinking about this idea of the bigger impact is taking the junk out of the junk food and junk food is not going away. We're all part of our society. So the question really became, well, scientifically, just how much junk can you take out of junk food? And, you know, that was sort of the origins of the business. And, and, and the drive, the mission for you was a science one, was a public health one or was a commercial one? I think it was, you know, it's, it's a bit of all of them. You know, I, I was in love with the science and intrigued about what was going on in alternative meats and, you know, the extent to which, you know, clever scientists could work this out. And I, I took some of the money I'd made from Grey's, 
and literally bet it on a load of scientists, much to the despair of my wife. Um, but yeah, I kind of really enjoyed it. Um, um, but I also do genuinely believe this is the problem. And I love the food industry. and I find it endlessly interesting. And I've always worked in it. And I kind of think no one's really figured out how it can change course in any country in the world. So it's a nice big problem. And I'm interested in it. I want to be part of it. Um, I don't know. It's got to be a commercial success. It's got to make sense, um, you know, as well. So how does one make a healthy donut? How, how, how well, I think the question is, how much of the sugar, fat and calories can you take out of a donut? Mm-hmm. And um, the, the bottom line is, it's got a lot of all of these things in, and for very good reasons. It's not just taste. It's, it's it, it, you know, they have over 20 functional roles in, in the product. Um, and... Everyone said it was impossible, which is very common, uh, you know, with anyone starting a business that you couldn't, you know, maybe you could take 10% of the sugar out or 20%. You're never going to get 70% out and never mind the fat and the sugar at the same time. Um, but, you know, the, the fun was I went to a, a load of scientists who didn't work for the food industry and was like, okay, let's talk about this as a polymer science problem. Let's talk about this as a rheology problem. How would you solve it? And um, that was part of the fun. I love seeing your energy and enthusiasm, particularly when you said people thought we couldn't do it. It, it is a character. I hate being told that something's impossible if I think it isn't. Um, and uh, I think a few times in my career, I have done things which, you know, the market bet against or the average person. And um, I'd say this is another example that I'm like, well, unless someone can tell me exactly why it can't be done, then <laughs> I don't believe you, you know, and... Some of the people saying it could never be done. I wasn't, I would, was not convinced. Had really thought about this enough or spent enough money or, you know, really committed to it fully. And how how many iterations did you need to go through before you got to a, a product that you could actually give to a customer? I, I mean, this is all very, this is all very hackneyed, but hundreds and hundreds and, yeah. you know, lots of tests and, um, you know, started in the kitchen and then it moved to the utility room and then the shed and then the base, you know, as in, the machines multiplied, you know, endless cupboards were taken over. I, I managed to get some people to lend me a lab at one stage, which was helpful because this wasn't just a kitchen table exercise anymore. Was there ever a moment in that journey where you thought, you know, maybe it can't be done? Yeah, my wife went to me one evening. She was like, just out of interest. I think she was looking at our joint bank account or something, you know, kind of. Uh, she was like, how sure have you you know, this can be done. And I was like, oh, maybe 50-50 at this stage. And she just kind of nodded and, you know, mm. <laughs> was hoping a higher number than that. Um, and, and was that what you really thought? Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah. it was it was so bad when I when I started. And um, I, I think the, the, the advantage of having had this conversation with Public Health England was I was determined it had to get to this completely unnatural place. Else I think you'd have ended up with another product which was slightly lower in sugar and fat than the things on the market. You had to have a reason to go, to try and go so radically beyond, you know, what has mainly been achieved within that sector. And do you remember your Willy Wonka moment where you first tasted the product and you thought, this is it, or or I know now that it can work? Yeah, there was there was a breakthrough moment. And that's sort of what's in our patent, you know, is there was a genuine, you know, there's, there's 100 optimizations. And there was one thing where it was like, Oh, good God, that works. Um, 
And yeah, I gave it to my wife and she was like, oh, that's better. I think she was like, yeah, moving in the right direction. <laughs> and how long had you been doing it for at that time when you got that breakthrough? I mean, it was, it was probably a year. Um, I, guess I, I mean, this was definitely one of those things where I'd quite happily sit up late at night, feverishly reading scientific articles or, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, trouble sitting in the kitchen trying to puzzle things out. So it, it had been going on for a while <laughs> by that stage. And does it feel different holding a donut that you originated compared with holding a graze box that you've worked on, but somebody else founded or an innocent smoothie bottle that somebody else has created? No, I, 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 a consistent problem I have is a deep dissatisfaction with every product I've ever put my name to. So I sit there looking at the donut and, you know, the the poor team know this and all i can see is what's holding it back from being a better product i've never had that rosy <laughs> do you think it'll ever come um no I, I i think it's an unhealthy trait which can be healthy and unhealthy depending on how it manifests itself so so where is the business today and what's your vision for it so you know we've been selling the product since last summer you know we've opened some pop-up stores um, and, you know, what will become clear, I think, in the next year is, you know, we definitely created something scientifically remarkable and interesting <laughs> to the industry. Um, but have we made something which consumers are going to go crazy for? Um, and I think we'll find, you know, we will find out whether consumers do want a viscoelastic donut that is expanded by a beam of steam that is, you know, then cleverly disguised as an indulgent squidgy donut. But, but you're close. Maybe the word viscoelastic might not end up in your final tagline. <laughs> have you have you employed anybody that's knocked on your door and asked for a job? As part of as part of this, if people want to knock on my door, I'm I'm very happy to see them. I have many problems. <laughs> They do need smart young people to, to solve them. Yeah, the exact pitch I made for several people have knocked on my door is I was happy to do anything, was the key thing, which is different to knocking on a door and asking for a certain exec role with an exec salary. And, you know, is uh, one is definitely um, says something different about the individual than the than the other. Amazing. So I, I always like to ask a question of of, of real experts um, in, in, in a particular field and and one here is, you know, there are so many people who are going to be sitting at their kitchen table with an idea for some new food product or a healthy food product. And maybe they've been testing things and they're munching on something they think is pretty tasty. What What's your advice to somebody like that as to something that they can do to figure out whether this is a hobby or whether they should actually progress it as a business idea? Yeah, so I, I, I think the first thing is, you know, are you onto something? And... Um, it probably needs to be a really remarkable product to break through. And then you've got to have a remarkably good way of explaining it, which is, you know, people often describe it as the brand or the branding or, you know, th these sorts of words. And I think trying to work out whether you've got these two things is a good place to start. And, and how do you do that? You know, I, I think you, you show it to people who aren't families and friends who give terribly biased advice and see if you get a remarkable reaction. And what I've seen at both Grey's and Innocent, but also many of my peers, is when they give the product to consumers, they engender a strong response. And then really all you're doing when you grow that business is trying to get as many people to have that strong response as possible. And, you know, people will adopt your adopt your product. 
but most of the time food products only get a bit of a meh response oh yeah it's all right yeah it's nice it's really nice you know might buy it um so i think you've got to see that shock or that transformational moment which is going to be memorable she's going to have the word of mouth which is going to drive the habit change um because it's very difficult without that you've got to be a a global cpg company to to, to put an average product in the market and <laughs> and drive it through the system a lot of people they they themselves have a wow factor for their product or they they're passionate about their product they give it to people that they don't know and those people go you know it's okay to which what you're saying is they should at that point realize that it's not got the wow factor for people that are not family and friends. How how do you let go of something that you're passionate about but you realize is not going to get the market reaction? Yeah, and I think this is the dilemma um, because most people get the okay response. The difference, I think, is the people who you know listen to the feedback and are so driven that they then go and work out how to get okay to wow. And that normally involves driving over some obstacles, <laughs> some pretty significant obstacles of, you know, which manifest themselves. Um, so it, that's always the response. If you, if, if you've produced a winner the first time, wow, you know, hats off, but you know, this is, this is the problem is it, it, it's never really clear until you go a bit further down the road and then a bit further down the road. And all of that takes time and money and energy and, you know, the, the odds are against you. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I keep on going until, you know, the business fails is, has always been my, my, my approach, but that comes with a cost. So for you, when you think about you in, in your best self, you know, in a few years time, what would you like to be doing in your, in your perfect life? I, I mean, the reason I started this business is because I genuinely at the bottom of my heart, don't think sugar and fat is quite as necessary as, you know, everyone says. And you know, starting with bakery and donuts, you know, I've learned to a certain extent that that is true. And nothing makes me happier at the moment than, than continuing to learn around this area and where it could go. Um, and maybe we will look back in 10 or 20 years and think we were mad as the human race for consuming <laughs> so much of this stuff, which caused so many issues for us. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I think that's the thing I am sure, you know, there's so many uncertainties, but what I'm sure of is I find this problem fascinating. And I, you know, deeply believe that, you know, science has the answer, whether believe in science will be the the company who succeeds in doing it, I don't know. But you know, that's, that's certainly what propels me every day. Fantastic. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? And, and where can they get hold of your healthy donuts? Yes, yeah, so you, you, we've got a shop in Clapham, and we've got a shop in Brighton, which we'd, we'd love to see you in. And you, if you go to our website, and you're happy to buy a very large minimum order quantity to carry a taxi, you can get it anywhere in London. Um, but you know, uh, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink. Hopefully you'll be able to see it in a lot more convenient and closer location soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For healthy food entrepreneur and CEO Anthony Fletcher, it was recognising that he was holding on to all the reins and relationships and needed to let go, empower and align the individuals around the table, enabling the team to deliver collectively at the highest level. It unlocked incredible performance and demonstrates how leadership is ultimately about mastering the art of letting go. Anthony is on a mission to remove the junk from junk food, and I'm sure he's onto a winner with the urban legend Healthy Donuts. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you very much, Gary.